John chapter 6, verses 1 to 35. And I'm reading from the NIV. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. Tiberius wanted to be famous, so he named the sea after himself. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Not a meal, a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up, here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks and distributed those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Evidently, the fish was more popular. After the people saw the sign... Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. They had been on the eastern side of the sea and now they're heading to the west. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters were rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified is a better word. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The next day, the crowd that stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realised that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realised that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, 
Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him again, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Gracious God, open our eyes that we may see some wonderful things from your word. To your praise. Amen. You will need to do some mental gymnastics this morning. That's in addition to listening to me. In our culture, bread is not essential for sustaining life. Bread has become elitist, I reckon. Think of all the different breads you can buy. It's a bit different when I was a kid and my mother baked all our bread. At home, the situation was you can have any bread you like as long as it's what I bake. We didn't have any choice but I digress. The mental gymnastics are because in Jesus' time, bread was essential. Um, this anecdote might help you get into the groove. Twelve years ago, um, six, of us, six of us from Albany Baptist visited Guinea-Bissau. We were there to visit a young woman from Albany Baptist who was working for the Evangelical Church of Guinea-Bissau in their school system. She had a very, very vital and essential work. She and we went to the market, we were there for three weeks, and she and we went to the market every day to buy bread. Long breadsticks, about this long, uh, in the marketplace. Why? Two reasons. First, bread was essential. It was a staple food for Guineans, um, along with rice. Yes, rice in Africa. It was um, equal, of equal importance with um, rice. And the bread didn't last. You only bought enough for each day. The next day, you could use the breadstick for a weapon. Um, so 
Keep those breadsticks in mind as we go through. They were essential and they didn't last. The passage, as you saw from our reading, opens with Jesus feeding thousands and then walking on water. Um, it's important that we just recall that briefly. Jesus is on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. The people follow. They are desperate to see some more miracles. They are hungry. And Jesus sets up a test. How can we feed this lot? And Philip and Andrew don't have the faintest idea. Um, Andrew at least suggests a lunch, but then the boys lunch, but then says, well, that's not going to go far. So that's the scene. No resources, no money, no food, no shops, very distant place, a hungry crowd, completely bewildered disciples, an impossible situation. And again, the gospel writer is so tantalizingly brief with what comes next. Jesus takes the boy's lunch. I wonder what he thought of this man pinching his, his uh, lunchbox. But anyway, Jesus gives thanks and distributes the lunch to the crowd. Five small loaves. They would have been like about that size. And two small fish. Imagine the disciples took up the job or whatever, but anyway, we're not told. And people could take as much as they wanted. It wasn't rationed. And they did. And everybody is satisfied. And when it's over, they collect up 12 baskets of leftovers for the disciples. Say what? How many people? 5,000. No, no. That's just the men. In those days, the women weren't counted. Sorry about that. Um, a more complete estimate by all the experts is 15,000 people. Five loaves, two fish, fed 15,000 people. 3,000 people per loaf. 7,500 people per fish. The people are mightily impressed. They want to make Jesus king, but he will have none of it, and he escapes into the mountain uh, alone. The disciples hang around, um, but it gets dark. Jesus isn't there, so they give up and head for home across the sea. Uh, this boat is a boat with oars not sails and they no doubt take the 12 baskets of food with them it's tough going they're not in danger they're just rowing against the wind and the waves and it's arduous work ask any kayaker who's in that situation the 12 baskets of food are not in danger of sinking but as they sweat it out Jesus wanders up to the boat Walking on the water. Unsurprisingly, they're scared witless. I mean, who walks on the water? It wasn't on the edge where it was shallow and it looked like he was walking. They're three or four miles into the lake and 
There's a lot further to go. So why has John put these events here before the sermon? Before we do that, let's look at the bread of life. It's clearly a major theme. Um, Observe the repetition. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. 48, the bread of life. 51, the living bread. This bread is my flesh. 55, my flesh is real food. 58, this is the bread that came down from heaven. When, as we saw at the beginning, when Jesus is using a very familiar image, bread was essential, absolutely essential to life. We've seen that it's not like that today, hence the mention of mental gymnastics. So try and get it into your mind that bread was essential to life. Um, There's a bit of an example mentioned in the passage. Centuries earlier, God's people were in the desert and they were starving. Yahweh responded to their pleas and sent what was called manna. Um, The Jewish people called it bread from heaven. And Jesus refers to it in verse 31. Without it, they would have starved. Without that manna, they would have starved. So when Jesus claims to be the bread of life, he's saying, you can't survive without me. Without him, you will starve to death. Jesus is God's provision for a starving world. To live, you cannot do without him. But you would be thinking, he's not talking about physical starvation. So what's he on about? Well, maybe this passage from Deuteronomy 8 will help. Um, I won't read the whole lot of it, um, just... Drop down to verse 3. And he humbled you and let you hunger. Sorry. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that human beings do not live by bread alone, but they live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That passage is so critical in Jesus' thinking that he repeats it to his, uh, in when he was on earth. He responds to the devil's temptation with the same words. Human beings shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. And it's in Matthew and also in Luke. Strangely enough, same chapter, same verse. According to John 1.1, Jesus is the Word. He reveals what God is like. He brings the message, the words of God into the world and he himself is the message and the Word. And humanity is starving from the lack of the knowledge of God. People all around are searching for something transcendent, something bigger and beyond us, 
but they're seeking it in the material, in the here and now, in the temporary. And people realise that life is more than the material and they're looking for the spiritual world, they're looking for nourishment in the spiritual world and they look everywhere except where it's found. And that pursuit sets up a dislocation inside people so that they're never fully at peace, never truly at rest. Their spirits are parched, their souls are starving for true nourishment. Augustine, who was an early theologian, 5th century, said, You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And into this world, this starving world, Jesus comes and makes this audacious claim. I am true food, food for the soul. I am the bread of life, essential for sustaining and nourishing life. I am the bread of life, the life-giving, life-sustaining, eternity-producing food. Jesus comes and it is he that quenches the soul's raging thirst He is the one who satisfies the hungry soul. It's not that he provides the food that satisfies the soul. He is the food that satisfies the soul. It's not my brief today, but this is why Jesus uses an an outlandish analogy. And if any verses caused any controversy, this is the one. Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I'll raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Huge controversy over that, but you can ask me about that afterwards. What he's saying is that he is real food, he is real drink, and you have to eat it and you have to drink it. The sole hunger of humanity is only satisfied in Jesus. Life, true life, Eternal life, God's life, is only found in Jesus Christ. Of course, we're alive, but not by nature to God. We don't know God, we don't appreciate him, we do not share his life. But just as bread was essential to survive then, Jesus, the bread of life, is essential now. And beyond the now. But is this for real? Can anyone be sure that he can do and will do what he says? 
It is a good question because there are so many charlatans around spruiking their ideas and there are so many advertisers spruiking their stuff and it turns out to be rubbish. There are so many religious cranks who claim so much and deliver dust. They claim to deliver the world and they just deliver dust. Well, I suggest this is where the feeding and the walking on the water come in. You see, they're not just stories, a miracle for the sake of a miracle. It's not about compassion. Jesus didn't provide water for the crowd, for example. That's more important than food. It's not about small children using their little gifts for God's work. It's not about God using weak human beings in his service. That's elsewhere. They didn't contribute a thing. All they did was say, this is impossible. What then? Well, they're signs. Notice the word sign or signs in verses 2, 14, 26 and 30. Um, there are more of them in the rest of John's Gospel. It's one of the features of John's Gospel that he's talking about signs. So they're not random events, they're signs. And the purpose of a sign, as is very obvious, um, is to direct people's attention not to itself, but to something else. The, the um, street signs are not the street they're pointing you and telling you that's the street. So these miracles or these signs are pointing somewhere. Keep that in mind. And let me mention John 1.14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Pitched his tent among us is a colloquial rendering. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is John's introduction. So written after these events happened, John is reflecting. He's looking back. And he realises that he saw Jesus' glory in all that happened. He saw his worth in the miracles. He saw his glory in the cross. He saw his majesty in his preaching. They saw his weightiness in his compassion. They saw his divine identity and supreme worth in the death and, and his death and, death, and death and resurrection. So these signs are signs pointing to Jesus' identity. They are like an intense beam of light where you look along the beam and see the object on which it's focused. This is what the miracle of the feeding is doing. It's shedding a beam of light on Jesus. It's revealing him as the provider of essential, satisfying, abundant food. Like an arrow of light, it reveals him as the providing, life-giving, life-sustaining food. So that is a sign 
pointing to the fact that Jesus is the all-sufficient provider of soul life, of eternal life, soul-nourishing food. But as is so often the case, the people missed it. They wanted someone who did earthly stuff. They wanted someone who, a king who would make it good for them, who would give them earthly benefits. But that's not Jesus. He came to bring life. He came to die and rise again to bring life, divine life and implant it in the souls of people. Life with God now and life forever in God's presence. But you can miss him. I pray that you will not miss Jesus. If you are more focused on this life, if your main goal is to live for the now and for yourself, you've missed him. If the legitimate things of this life occupy all your attention and receive your best thoughts and actions, you fail to see Jesus. You are slowly starving to death. So why might the story of Jesus' nocturnal jaunt on the top of the water be told? If it's a sign, it's pointing to Jesus, but what about him? I suggest along this line. The disciples, you remember, waited for Jesus. He doesn't come, so they... Verse 17, it was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. Um, so they set off on the boat and Jesus walks on top of the water as if it's a solid footpath. It's extraordinary when, uh, we won't go there, but you think about it. This, it's very rough and he's walking on it. This can only be a naked display of God power. And they come to realise it, and that's why this, they, this is something supernatural, so they are petrified. But they come to realise that Yahweh, the eternal God, is present with them. Maybe Psalm 7, 23 and 30 will help. Some went out on the sea in ships. They were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord his wonderful deeds in the deep. For he spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. They mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunkens. They were at their wit's end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he brought them out of, the, out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm and he guided them to their desired haven. It's not the stilling of the storm here, but it's indicating the mastery of the natural elements. He's wandering along the top of the water like we wander along the footpath. He's, only, he's doing what only God can do. My conclusion is that this is the true God, the Almighty, the eternal God is present with them 
He's the one that fed 15,000 people and he's with them on the water. So this is my take on these two events. They are signs pointing to the identity and work of Jesus. This is the Son of God, God in human nature, who is saying, I am the bread of life. So when he says, I'm the bread of life, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst, I suggest it might be true. We all know words are cheap, but when they are backed up with actions, we generally take notice. The mighty God is here at work. I am the bread of life. And to show you I'm serious, I'll take five loaves and two fish and feed 15,000 people. To reveal who I am, I will do something only God can do. Walk on the water. Can you trust Jesus' words? On the evidence before us, I'd say you can. But, one more thing. If you simply admire the bread in the cabinet, keep your mind in that bread's essential, if you simply admire the bread in the cabinet, or to go back to Guinea-Bissau, if you simply stand there looking at those breadsticks, you'll starve. So Jesus says, work for the bread that lasts, not for bread that is temporary. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. The context, of course, suggests that don't put your effort into food that goes bad. You see, the crowd is fixated on food, on earthly stuff. Life was tough, food was sparse, they're hungry. Naturally, they want food. And Jesus is not rejecting that. He fed them after all. But there is more to life than food. There is more than this life. There is life that lasts forever. And he says, work for that. Not material, temporal things, not upward mobility, not bigger pay, not positions of power, not lust for weekends, passion for self-focused living, fame or security or comfort, whatever else. None of those things are necessarily wrong. But they will disappear. They are temporary, fleeting, fading. The work of God is this, to believe on the one he has sent. Eat, taste, believe, trust, embrace, treasure. Be satisfied with Jesus, the all-satisfying, life-giving, eternity-producing bread of life. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. This is the kind of work that pleases God and gives life. It's to come to Jesus. It's to take Jesus. It's to eat or take in Jesus.
we are at a bit of a disadvantage. And it's not just Baptists. We've grown up. There, I'm talking about people my age, so excuse you. Um, younger people, you can turn off. Um, we've grown up with this idea that belief is simply accepting a few propositions. Nothing could be further from the truth if you look at the fact that Jesus says, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. So it's far more interesting and complicated. But what does it mean to eat Jesus? It means to treasure Jesus above all your treasures. The people had in front of them the infinitely valuable, infinitely glorious, all-satisfying bread of life. And they asked, what do we do to do the works of God? No, 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 no. Not what you do, not your work. That's futile, that's wasted effort. No, what matters is God's work. No point in you working, that won't feed your soul. That won't bring life to your dead spirit. Instead, embrace Jesus. God's work is to eat, to taste, to trust, to savour Jesus Christ. To see him for who he is. Not a miracle worker, but the bread of life. Taste and see. This is God's work. This brings life. Anything else brings death means treasuring Jesus above my work, treasuring Jesus above my leisure, treasuring Jesus above my spouse, treasuring Jesus above my children, treasuring Jesus above everything. He is the treasure of all your treasures. Not adding him as a treasure to all the other treasures, he is the treasure, the treasure of all our treasures. If you live for this world, you will die. It's food that doesn't last. Only embracing and living for Jesus is life eternal. Jesus is the bread of life. Only he is the all-satisfying, life-sustaining food for your soul. What you must do is taste and eat. Believe and live. If you crave meaning and purpose, if you desire soul satisfaction, if you have hope, if you want hope for a life beyond the grave, then taste and eat the bread of life. That is true food. That is eternal life. That will change everything. Because Jesus changes everything. Amen.